1: and welcome to Retro Perspective, the show on the Nerd Party where we take a look at all of the movies released 25 years ago this week. I'm Mike. I'm John. And today we're going to be taking a look at the movies released on November 4th, 1994. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for this? Are you kidding? November
0: 1994. We are entering into the final lap of 1994 after a surprising October where we got so many Oscar contenders. Surely, what treasures lay in wait for us between here and the end of the year, Mike?
1: Well, the first of these treasures, which uh, debuted at number 18 at the box office with $4,000, and the most critically acclaimed movie of the week, 67% on Rotten Tomatoes, is Floundering. Floundering, which...
0: I suppose you could say is the definition of making $4,000 at the box office.
1: But um, am yeah. bum bum. Yeah. This movie, it has uh, James LaGrosse in it, John Cusack, Jeremy Piven, you know, the usual suspects. Yeah. Uh, and it's a slacker movie. So I'm sure that you were into it. Nope.
0: No. I, I wasn't even aware of this thing's existence back in 1994. No, I don't I know. I, most people were. Yeah, judging by the box office, I, w- mm-hmm. I was not uh, the exception but the rule. So, yeah. no, no, didn't know about it.
1: I could see myself watching it under circumstance, certain circumstances, but not these circumstances.
0: Yeah, yeah. This, this was a pass.
1: All right, so moving on to number 16 at the box office with $37,000 and a 53% on Rotten Tomatoes, second uh, best reviewed movie of the week, Oleana, which is impossible to find. Yes, I tried. You yeah. tried. This is a David Mamet movie starring William H Macy. Um, it's and it's a,
0: it's based on a David Mamet play, an award winner of a play, a play that you know, as a theater major, was a huge reference point, uh, you know, in theater classes. Everybody wanted to do Mamet. and you basically had people that wanted to do Oleana, and then you had people that wanted to do Glengarry Glenn Ross.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And Oleana, I've heard great things about the movie, but it's just impossible to really lay your hands on a reasonable copy.
1: Yeah, it's kind of weird. You know, I mean it, with the movie it's about uh William H. Macy plays a professor, right? And then there's like a student, a female student. And there's a question as to what happened behind closed doors. And the movie doesn't give you a clear answer as to what happened. And it's really kind of a he said, she said sort of thing. And like the trailer says, uh, no matter whose side you're on, you're wrong. So, Uh, Mamet
0: had... Has, I think, a real talent for tapping into things that are below the surface that uh,
1: everybody else catches up to in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, I mean, it, uh, it seems like any time he has a movie come out, it's kind of an event. Uh, mm-hmm. And that maybe has uh, sort of gone away in recent years. I know he did uh, what, like the Phil Spector movie for HBO where people were kind of like, what's going on here? Um, But, you know, prior to that, like going back to the beginning with like House of Games, you know, I I mean, Mm -hmm. people loved that movie. I remember being shown that in high school, you know, and it's weird because he is like an extremely good writer, but his direction is kind of sketchy at times. Like he's so into the words that, I mean, like, have you seen The Spanish Prisoner? No, but I have seen uh, plenty of stuff that he
0: didn't direct. So mm-hmm. I, I I definitely agree with you that Mamet is an incredible writer, but I think that his direction, I think that the hurdle that he faces is that he's so stuck in theater tradition mm-hmm. that he doesn't make that mental leap to the fact that film is, in fact, a different medium. Like, sort of the way that um, what happened was was yeah. like, this is all staged for a theater production. This isn't a film production that you're putting on right now. You're filming a stage play. And I think that Mamet, uh, you know, if he has a flaw as a director, that tends to be uh, what it is.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I do enjoy, I think, all of the movies that I've seen of his that he's directed. State and Maine, you know, uh, The Heist or Heist or whatever it's called like those things. Um, w- one that I would recommend, though, highly, is Spartan. Yes. Uh, have you seen I, that?
0: I recommend that highly as well. I had a uh, friend of mine, Warren, who um, that became one of his pet projects. Like, you know how all of us have one where we're like, we get after a friend, where it's like, so did you see it yet? So did you see it yet? That was his movie with me. And yes, I agree with you. Spartan is exceptional. Surprisingly so.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's good. So, so yeah, uh, go go check out go check out Spartan. Have you heard the Paul Thomas Anderson film school story? No, I haven't. Um, he Paul Thomas Anderson went to film school and he got there all excited and everything. And on the very first day of his screenwriting class, his professor said, uh, "If you're here to make Terminator Two, leave." And he's like, well, that's kind of BS, because for one thing, you know, Terminator 2 is pretty cool, but also um, what if it's someone's dream to make Terminator 2? Why are you discouraging them like that? So he had his suspicions about this this professor, and he was given an assignment on the first day to uh, write a scene with no dialogue, which gives great insight into the character in the scene. And uh, David Mamet had written the script for Hoffa, but the movie hadn't been produced yet at this point. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene in Hoffa, which I haven't seen actually, where uh, someone is driving a car and they light up a cigarette and they put the cigarette between their fingers so that the ash, as it burns, it hits their fingers and the the burnt ash wakes them up so yep. they stay awake while they're driving. Yeah. And he's like, "Okay, here this is a scene written by Pulitzer Prize winner David Mamet. I'm just going to take this scene out of the script and turn it in for my homework assignment and let's see what happens." And he gets the 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 assignment back and he gets a C. And he's huh. like, "Okay, <laughs> That's what I thought. This is yep. this is a bunch of BS. And then he dropped out of film school, and the rest is history. So uh,
0: go. thank goodness he did. Yeah, um, but well.
1: yeah,
0: uh, H- Hoffa is a good. I haven't seen it in many many years, but it was one of those movies where it was a good movie, but it wasn't a great movie. Uh, Danny DeVito directed that, didn't
1: he? Did he?
0: Oh, I, th- I thought I thought he did because the fictional character who's created. Um, to sort of act as the audience go-between with Hoffa, who's Jack Nicholson in heavy makeup. Um, I think I could have sworn, I I could be misremembering, but I could have sworn it was DeVito as the director. Yeah, you're right. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And that was like a prestige picture. Everybody was like, oh, this is the one. Oh, Nicholson, he's going to win an Oscar for this. And then it came out, everybody was like, yeah, it's okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Frank
0: Whaley's in that one, too. Yeah? Yeah.
1: Well, there's another Hoffa movie coming out now, so maybe that'll win some Oscars.
0: I heard it paints houses. Yes. Yes,
1: it does. (laughs) Um, All right. So next up, number 12 at the box office. With $1.7 million and 13% on Rotten Tomatoes, Double Dragon. Double Dragon.
0: Yeah. Which I didn't see at the time, but I watched for this show.
1: Yeah. I did. And does it, does it uh, go against that, that video game curse? No. God, no. Um, <laughs> it is...
0: It's, it, the thing is, in the first, I'd say the first 20 minutes, you really want to give it a break. Because they're obviously aware of how absurd this movie is. And so there's sort of this sense of we're going to make a kid's movie along the lines of like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or something. Um, And so there's no attempt at trying to make this into high art, as it were. And you have Robert Patrick uh, playing a villain. And with the way they frost his hair, he... He actually winds up looking like uh Guy Fieri, uh, hmm. which is which is interesting. Um and you have uh, Alyssa Milano's and it like you have all of this stuff, and there's uh obviously inspired by Robocop and Robocop 2, there's this bit where Vanna White and George Hamilton are the news anchors in this post apocalyptic LA. And it's actually, you know, you get a a chuckle out of it. You're like, oh, okay. Well, that's kind of cute. And uh, Andy Dick is the weatherman. And, you know, and they do all of this stuff. But unfortunately, what happens a little too quickly is it enters into tank girl territory where it's so in love with the conceit of admitting that it's absurd that there's just no way to invest your. Your your time or your emotions in the movie. And it's just sort of like this slog to the end sort of thing. And it's it's just, you know, it's obviously, hey, double dragons you, you know, the the 90s as we all know. Oh, video games are huge. Yeah, let's make movies based off of them. That's that's kids are going to want to go see these. And yeah. There you go. Is it a, now on a scale of Super Mario Brothers 2. trying to think of what a good video game movie is. Resident Evil? Yeah, that was all right. Okay, so, I mean, I wouldn't...
1: I don't recall it as being really
0: good. But anyway... I mean, they say I, the
1: Angry Birds movie 2 is like the first... is like the best reviewed video game movie ever. ever.
0: It's interesting times we live in. But anyway, on a scale of uh, Super Mario Brothers to Resident Evil, it's below the halfway mark. But it's it's not as low as uh, as Super Mario Brothers, a movie I walked out of, and then had to walk back into because my friends wouldn't leave. Um, yeah, that was awful. Just like Species, that was another one where I walked out and I was like, I'll light a cigarette, and by the time the cigarette is done, they will know to. I'll smoke two cigarettes and then I'll go in fine. I'll go back in and um, my friends suck. But um, yeah, double dragons bad. It's a bad movie. Okay. Yeah.
1: I'll keep that in mind. Um, You know, it is interesting though. I I mean, I was just looking at the writing credits story by Mm -hmm. Paul Dini. Mm -hmm. I know of course. Yeah. Creator of Harley Quinn and then screenplay by Peter Gould, who, of course, wrote for Breaking Bad and then created Better Call Saul. Everybody's so, got to start somewhere. I guess so. Oh, All yeah. right. Well, I didn't watch it. Um, but number four at the box office with $6.5 million and 25% on Rotten Tomatoes was The War. Yes. And I know you watched this one. I did. I did. This was uh, a Kevin Costner.
0: All right. He's gonna go for another Oscar shot here. He's he now he's gonna be the actor who goes for the Oscar shot, and um, Elijah Wood, uh, in I would argue, is his breakthrough performance. Not Back to um, the Future Two. Was he in Back to the Future Two?
1: Yeah, he's one of the he's the kid who fixes the video game in uh in in the eighties cafe, and he's like, you mean you need to use your hands? Oh, okay. Well, obviously he uh he had
0: a career before this, but uh he in this one he's a uh, somewhat central role. It's this is a movie where it has Oscar bait written all over it and it never earns that that type of attention. It it really really wants to be um serious. And you you want to give it you, you get like you go through the whole movie sort of like giving it the benefit of the doubt where you're like okay it's it's going to get together it's you know I see where you're going with this I get it I get it but then by the end it devolves into this completely ham-handed metaphor that you know oh look the kids are fighting over the tree fort and this is just like the wars that we have and concerned looks and children getting hurt and it's like Ugh, okay and so. Yeah, it's just, it's very forgettable.
1: So it's as good as they say.
0: Yes, yes it is.
1: All right, well that's good to know. Yeah. I'll continue to not watch it. Good plan. But the number one movie of the week, which was number two at the box office, didn't crack that number one spot, but number two at the box office with $14.2 million dollars and a 39% on rotten tomatoes Frankenstein
0: Ah, correction. The title card says Mary Shelley's Frankenstein.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't go for that that, you know, that uh, you know, John Carpenter's whatever, nah.
0: well, 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 no. Well, whoa, whoa! no, it's Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, just like it's Francis Ford Coppola's Bram yeah. Stoker's
1: Dracula. Yes. So, it's like like in Free Enterprise when you know, Shatner's trying to make (laughs) Julius. He's like, William Shakespeare's and William Shatner's. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) yes, Yeah. And I'm curious because I've never read Frankenstein. I'm curious to see how accurate it was because I mean, clearly by saying Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, what you're saying is like, this is the one for real. Like you grew up, with the universal monster movie, Frankenstein, and that's how people perceive Frankenstein. But this is the real Frankenstein. This is the real deal.
0: Uh, along the same lines that Coppola's Dracula was the real one, where yeah. it's definitely much more influenced by the, the, by the book, uh, by the source material, mm-hmm. but it is still divergent enough that it's not quite... I have read um Frankenstein. So it's, it's an excellent book. Um it's terrific. I uh Stoker's Dracula and Frankenstein are two of my favorite books of all time. They're yeah. absolutely magnificent. And um yeah, I mean structure-wise this has more of a touchstone and everything. And did you see this in the theater when it came out?
1: No. 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 Why not? Well, for one thing I was 14 years old. Um, so so it was rated R and, you know, also I was like, I don't want to see, you know, that. I mean, I I was scared to see Jurassic Park, you know, and I'm like, I don't know, whatever, but no, I didn't see it in the theater. Did you? Yes, of course
0: I did. Yeah. What do you think? uh, Kenneth Branagh, Frankenstein, Robert De Niro's in it, Helena Bonham Carter, like people know who that is. And like, you know, you got an, you know, an all-star, uh, you know, Cast list, uh Tom Hulse is in it, Aiden Quinn coming back after uh Blink. So mm-hmm. this is my second Aiden Quinn movie of the year.
1: Yeah. Our
0: I, second Aiden Quinn
1: movie of the year. I get the impression that Kenneth Branagh and I vaguely remember this at the time, and maybe it was just because of the people that I hung out with or whatever, or the town that I grew up in or whatever, but I really feel like, you know, in the nineties people felt like Kenneth Branagh was like the Orson Welles of our time. Yep. Yeah. I,
0: I, I'd, say, I'd say that that's accurate. And in fact, I remember specifically, uh, it would have been after this, that uh, one of the rumors that just wouldn't die was that Kenneth Branagh was going to play the young Obi-Wan Kenobi in mm-hmm. the Star Wars prequels. And I actually know how that rumor got started and have trumpeted it, but nobody's ever, you know, uh, listened to me for good reason, I guess. But there was that Star Wars Galaxy uh, series of cards, the trading cards. Remember?
1: Uh Uh-huh.
0: Do you remember this where like artists came in and did different uh, sketch cards and stuff like that? And it was sort of like a it, it was a celebration of Star Wars. There were foil cards and everything. And people would do – there was a – you know, part of the series was character studies. Part of the series was fantastical comic book art. Part of the series was just, you know, imaginative artwork from the artists and everything. Mm-hmm. And um one of the guys there painted what he saw as a young Obi-Wan Kenobi. And he modeled him after – kenneth branagh and the back of the card said oh kenneth branagh would be the perfect choice i see him as a natural inheritor of alec guinness and blah 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 and very shortly after that like wildfire suddenly everybody was talking about how kenneth branagh was going to play the young obi-wan kenobi and it was all because of a trading card
1: i remember that set the star wars galaxy card set I remember it because it was, like, I remember coming out and it looking really cool and everything like that. And I remember going to the comic book store and thinking, like, and asking, like, "Can you, are you getting this in? Can I get it? Whatever. How much would it cost for a complete set? You know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um back then, like, especially with comic book stores and especially with, like, merchandise that wasn't comics from comic book stores, there were no firm release dates, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of like, well, it's supposed to show up in July, but we don't know exactly when in July and it could be delayed and we're not going to know. So really, one day we're going to get a shipment and it's going to be there. And yeah. I would call every single week and be like, do you have the Star Wars Galaxy cards in yet? Do you have the Star Wars Galaxy cards in yet? To the point that like, I knew that I was getting to be annoying. Like, yeah. I'd call and like disguise my voice and everything like that. It's just the, the weird things that, that, that you would do as a kid, I guess. Sure. And I finally bought it uh, from you know <laughs> it, my friend Josh, who, who we talked to here before he was my friend. He worked at the comic book store, and he got the set and or got a box and put together a set and like the owner of the the comic book store basically said like look this kid keeps on annoying me can you just sell him your set and then you know we'll we'll make another set for you and he did so Oh, that's nice. Yeah. There you go.
0: That's nice. I they had a collector's edition set naturally uh where it was shaped like the falcon Oh. And uh one of the cards was randomly quote unquote autographed, you know, printed autographed sort of thing. And it was um I think I had that set. Somebody gave me that set at some point. And it was uh I wanna say it was the artist who actually drew the back end of the Marvel run, the post Return of the Jedi run when Lumaya showed up and everything. And everybody's going cross eyed with with that, but like um yeah, Cynthia something. But that was kind of cool because I was like, oh hey, I know who that is. Yeah. Um but that set is lost to the mists of time. I've no idea whether I sold it or just gave it to somebody or something.
1: I probably got it in my parents' attic somewhere, I don't know for sure. But uh it was a cool set. Although I mean the one that was really super cool was when they released the uh the widescreen cards.
0: Oh yeah. Screen caps. Oh, those
1: were awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was cool. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, and that comic book, I mean, they had some pretty substantial artists on there, including uh, <laughs> Carmine Infantino, who mm-hmm. I know I know everyone thinks of him as being sort of like the uh, quintessential Flash artist or whatever, one of the mm-hmm. big names from like the 70s and stuff like that, but as my friend Josh would say, like he's the only... Comic book artist uh, ever who would uh, draw <laughs> draw uh, people with a T square? <laughs> <And> <laughs> yep, it's so bad. But now you can go into like J C Penny and buy like a T shirt with like Carmine Infantino Star Wars art on it. Yep, it's the craziest thing ever. I feel obligated to, even though I I'm just just to wear, ironically uh, but.
0: I'm no, I, I mean, I'm sure I've gone on about it before, but like when I was younger, I hated Carmine Infantino's art. And then it was just when I got older that I sort of appreciated the, um, you know, what he, like the type of art that he represented sort of thing. But yeah, his, his characterizations were, were, were not entirely accurate. And the, the, the thing that actually made me, I guess, in, in retrospect, as I thought about it, made me feel even a little bit bad for him is right after his run was when uh, Al Williamson came on board. And that was, I mean, gold standard art. Yeah. You know, when Goodwin was writing with Williamson doing the art, like, it it never got better than that. Yeah. Um, and you're right. They did have some really uh, legit. Walt Simonson had a run on there. Um so, I mean, Howard Chaikin kicked off the whole series. Mm-hmm. So, I still think they should go back. They should grab the, co- the cast of Solo. Um, or, you know, certain people of it and adapt the first... Uh, the f- I want to say it's the first four to six issues after um, the original Star Wars adaptation when Chaikin was still, like, in control before they kind of kicked him off. But, like he followed han solo around and that's where we get you know the, the green rabbit and everything and jolly and everything like that um i think that would be a fascinating series for them to uh, to follow around
1: again. yeah there's a job of the hut in there too
0: a, a job of the hut yes <laughs> yeah. yes a a green whiskered job of the hut mhm yeah yeah very interesting interpretation
1: yeah yeah so so did you did you watch uh the Frankenstein again this time around or not i sure did i sure did and what'd you think yeah. uh i you know i
0: was kinder to it back then, and now it's just it's overwrought the set pieces are it's so it's so um it's so melodramatic as to be annoying. Did you rewatch it?
1: I watched it for the first time.
0: Oh, for the first time! Yeah. So, so I I would have figured you would have seen it between the movies and now. I had no idea this was the first time. So, uh, more interesting to me.
1: Tell me what you thought of it. Uh, I thought it was pretty bad. Um, okay. Yeah, you know, I mean, I was I was into the idea. Like, I mean, you say like Kenneth Branagh was doing. Frankenstein and oh and mm-hmm. Frank Darabont wrote it. And it's like, okay, cool. Yeah, let's see what this is. Because it is kind of like the idea of like, well, here's a story which has been told in movies forever, and now we are gonna go back to the source material and make like the definitive version. And that may be what this is, I don't know, but if it is, I'm like, geez, that's not as good as what they were doing. <laughs> in the 30s or 40s or whatever it's just like if it's so much bigger and sprawling and I don't know what they were doing with like the character of the monster but it did not it did not Okay work. see that that's the that's the thing about
0: Frankenstein's monster in the, the 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 book itself is a much more straightforward just horror story this is way more operatic and larger in scale. Whereas the book is very much like the, this movie works. The moments where it works are when it remembers that what the book is about is that question of what makes a person. What, what is the determining factor of who a person is and uh, their you know, what constitutes life and then the scientific, uh, you know, thrust of, of of you know how far is too far, what is unethical, those sorts of things, um, you know, reassessing our relationship with God, and and you know as we you know go into these scientific discoveries, but like you know a lot of the stuff showing up at like the university and its relationship with Helen Bonham Carter and all that stuff is tacked on, um, just like. You know, every film adaptation of Dracula, Renfield's role is never quite right. But Coppola got closest to it on screen. Um, and, uh, you know, the the Mina Harker thing. And I'm doing this just as an example, like the Mina Harker thing. That role is has it always winds up more reflective of the original Nosferatu. Um than it does of Mina Harker's role in the actual source material and stuff like that. But you know, all that to say that they're like, if you've read Frankenstein, you can see all of the markers that indicate where it came from, but you can also see all of these things that were tacked on to give it this sense of larger scope and more, you know, Frankenstein's a horror story. It's a campfire tale sort of thing. And so it doesn't have this, you know, overwrought sort of, you know, well, my mother thought I was special and then she died in childbirth and, you know, there were a lot of camera movements around as everybody's, you know, collapsing on the floor and stuff like that, you know.
1: <laughs> and I like the camera movement stuff. You know, I I don't know, De Niro, and, and I, you know, I, he's been typecast, really, you know, even though he is, you know, a great actor or whatever, he really has been typecast and when you say like, oh, he's going to play Frankenstein's monster, I'm like, really? How's that going to work out? And ultimately, I I don't think that it does work out. Um, but I mean, Brana, I thought was good, you know. Uh, but
0: uh, yeah. see, I actually flipped that. I don't like. I don't care for uh, Brana's performance, but I thought that uh, De Niro was interesting. Uh, the John Cleese character, who's invented for this was fair, you know, was fairly interesting. I, I, you know, I did like the idea of going in and, uh, you know, creating this mentor character um, for, for Frankenstein. Um, but it's really, you know, it, th- this is, it, this is in a sense like the war where it's like, I'm rooting for it. I want it to succeed, but it just never really comes together.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I I do. I mean, there was no bride of Frankenstein in the original book, was there? Correct. Yeah. So I kind of like the idea that they were like, oh, let's pay this homage to you know the classic movie or whatever you know, and have a bride of Frankenstein here. There was something about that which appealed to me, but ultimately, yeah, didn't. Yeah,
0: work. I I think it's obsession with going for the big production values. It winds up drowning out its own attempt at a message, which is, you know, again, scientific progress, our place in the world, dealing with death and loss. So I think a lot of the core uh, themes are lost in the noise.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I guess uh, the critics were right with the 39%. So... Not really that great of a week this week, aside from maybe the two movies, which are impossible to find. Yeah. Uh,
0: They're probably the gems.
1: Yep, Kind of disappointing. But next week, November 11th, there's only two movies Mm -hmm. to choose from, which is kind of surprising. The Santa Claus and Interview with the Vampire, The Vampire Chronicles.
0: And I got to do some research because... I do not
1: remember that The Vampire Chronicles business being on it when it was first released. I don't know about the title itself in the movie, but I remember everyone calling it Interview with the Vampire at the time. But like, I did watch the trailer, and even though the narrator says Interview with the Vampire, the title on the trailer is Interview with the Vampire, The Vampire Chronicles. Huh. So. I think that's probably there. I kind of feel like this was supposed to be the first in a series. Oh, it was. Oh,
0: yeah. yeah. No, hand, hands down, it was supposed to be. Kind of um, weird that it
1: didn't continue, but...
0: No, it did. Queen of the Damned. Though no, they skipped that over... Does,
1: that. Okay, okay. Yeah, it
0: does count because it's... Yes. <laughs> because what? <laughs> because Lestat, the same character comes back, even though he's recast, right? And it's the third book in the series, even though it's the second... Film in the series, that was their attempt to uh, to get things started back up with it.
1: Uh, that was their attempt to get things started back up with it, but that was a Manhunter Silence of the Lambs scenario right there. You know, that wasn't supposed to be. That wasn't Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal. That was Manhunter Silence of the Lambs.
0: Yeah, I, either way, though, I say I win on a technicality. So there.
1: No, 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 I get I get what you're saying. I'm just saying that's not... Yeah, okay.
0: Wait, are you saying The Queen of the Damned is an excellent movie? Is that your implication here?
1: No, I wasn't basing okay, the comparison on quality. I was basing it on, you know... Yeah, anyway. Okay, I gotcha. All right, so anyway, until next week. John, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, look for Castle Junkie. I am on Twitter... Uh, And
0: you'll find me over on Letterboxd, and you will find me here on the Nerd Party Network co-hosting a Star Wars program called Aggressive Negotiations with Matthew Rushing, where we get into all sorts of intriguing discussions about a galaxy far,
1: far away. So where can people find you, Mike? Uh, You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Mumbles3K, and you can find me on Trek.fm doing a show called Tracks on the Line and Tracks from the Edge. And you can find me soon on Talk Film Society doing a show called Bayhem. And you can also find me on FilmDamagePod.com doing a show called Film Damage. So uh, that's it for the first week of November. We're into the home stretch last two months. And until next time, be kind, rewind. Thank you.